0: Welcome to another Comic Source, Comic Boom Christmas collaboration. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's the Wednesday right before the holiday. Uh, This is your DC Spotlight for this week. Uh, Sorry it's coming out a little bit late, December 20th. uh, Usually we drop these at like 6 a.m., if not the night before. Um, But yeah, totally my fault. It was totally on me. I accidentally read the 18 books that are coming out next week on the 27th. And we got ready to record it. I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't read any of the 12 books that we're supposed to be talking about this week. I don't know if DC put, is putting out 12 books in, in honor of the 12 days of Christmas or 12 days of the comic source. But it is interesting because Rocky and I were talking about this last night. With eight, 12 books this week, and I, I think it's actually a 13 or 14, a couple, couple of the things that we don't talk about, Scooby-Doo and, and that sort of thing. And in 18 to 20 next week, it's like usually toward the end of the year, you get only a few books. because. Yeah. Things sort of shut down after Thanksgiving in terms of, you know, the, the craters are off and you want to give people time off for the holidays and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's like
1: DC's cra- trying to cram in a lot of information. They're trying to in some storylines and they're trying to cram in a lot before the dawn of the DCU, I think.
0: Yeah, they really are. And it's like 30, 30 issues in the last two weeks of the year. That's a lot of content. Crazy. That being, that being said, we're going to get started. Uh, and we're going to put this out right after we finish talking about it. So you'll still get it on Tuesday, the day the books uh, come out. But overall, a pretty solid week. Uh, and, and not only uh, do we have these, these 12 books this week and 18 next week, a lot of these are like anthologies or oversized specials and, and whatnot with extra stories. And that's certainly the case with Batman Urban Legends uh, 22, which I guess we're only going to end up with about two years worth of Batman Legends because my understanding is Batman Brave and the Bold, uh, that, that title that's starting off with the Tom King, Mitch Garrett story, which looks like it's going to be a Batman Joker story. Uh, That is my understanding that that's taken over for Batman Urban Legends. That'll be the Batman anthology moving forward. And the other thing that is my understanding is that that Brave and the Bold will have more kind of known creators. So I kind of have mixed feelings about that. I'm glad we're not getting two. I'm not glad we're not having two Batman anthologies ongoing. But I do like the fact that Batman Urban Legends is, in a way, given some lesser known creators an outlet for their work. Um, Yep. But it hasn't always been the best quality. So anyway... Uh, that being said, issue 22 of Batman Urban Legends, we have four stories here. Nightwing in the director, part one of two. Jamal Campbell, who is a, a fascinating, wonderful artist. Um, was it uh, green, the Green Lantern book? Um, and uh, Naomi. Na- uh, and Naomi, yeah. What was the Green? Uh, uh, far Sector. Far Sector. um Far that Sector he, that he was the, um, the artist on. And then you mentioned Naomi. He's writing and drawing this Nightwing story. Adriana Lucas on colors, Louis Gato- Lucas Gatoni on letters. Then we have a Batman and Anarchy, one-part story called Utility by Yadoy Travis is the writer. Lucas uh, Silveira does the art and colors and Farron Delgado on letters. Second part of the Arkham Academy story from Dennis Culver. Hayden Sherman on art, Jorda Belair on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. And then Batman and Murder Club Part three of four, Joey Esposito, Vasco Gregev, and uh, on art, Alex Guermas on colors and Carlos Manguel on letters. Um, I thought the Jamal Campbell story, Batman uh, or Nightwing and the director was an interesting start. The art was gorgeous, as I've come to expect. Interestingly enough, maybe because he's handling the writing duties, Jamal Campbell didn't do the colors because typically on art he's done in the past. Uh, Certainly on Naomi, he did the colors as well. But I think it certainly works with Adriana Lucas is a very, very talented uh, colorist in, in uh, his own right. I love that Jamal was bringing in other recent uh, characters in the Batman family with Seer, even though I don't find Seer particularly interesting. It was great to uh, see Seer here see because it did ground the story in current Batman continuity. And also um, the other thing is that it made sense like based on – this director who seems to be like this obsessive fan of Nightwing is following him around and, and then putting these videos up online. It made like, it makes sense that Seer is there, right? Seer is very much into technology and the internet and that sort of thing. So I thought it was a good start. I was pretty impressed with what Jamal Campbell has done here. Very well paced. Didn't feel crammed into the number of pages that we had.
1: So um, yeah, I really liked
0: it. Yeah. what did you think of the first story? I- Rob?
1: Uh, I, I liked. I liked that. I thought it was uh, an interesting idea—the idea that this director, this villain, is actually uh, is actually somebody who likes to orchestrate and and actually appears to hire people to be villains and criminals so that it will draw Nightwing out to defeat them, and that this person videotapes them and has a YouTube channel <laughs> essentially, and basically this has a as a YouTube channel called the Director. I'm calling it a YouTube channel to relate to our world, uh, and you know basically doing it to. Make Make some money up presumably on the side I guess uh, why not make money off superheroes fighting criminals and actually hiring the criminals to take them down and but things t- take a turn for the worse here because this director is uh, has more in store than just doing YouTube videos essentially he also ends up murdering a kid and killing off these people that he hires to be portray themselves as criminals to draw out Nightwing one of them ends up dying and Nightwing fails to save this kid named I think Marcus and uh, ends up getting drawn into a studio where uh, there's a horror scene being filmed and more people uh it looks like more people are gonna end up dying as a result of this and it was uh quite quite tragic and it sort of ends up uh, with a cliffhanger so and i agree with you jamel campbell as both the writer and the artist here he, he does a, a i don't know if this is his first stint as a as a writer but it's a pretty good job and it, it, it tells a fairly good easy to follow cohesive well-written good dialogue story
0: yeah, I agree. I was really impressed. As far as I know, this is his first writing, uh, at least for DC. Maybe he's done some creator-owned stuff that I'm I'm not familiar with. Um, the second story, the Anarchy story, as I said, by Yadoy Travis uh, and Lucas Silviera. This is a perfect example of what I was talking about with giving these lesser-known creators. I, I've never heard of either of these creators, and they do you a know, good enough job on this Anarchy story. It's a, it's a one-and-done, and basically what's happened is Anarchy has somehow stolen the des- designs for a bunch of Batman's weapons batarangs and grappling guns and what have you and he's he's put them online and people are um are basically 3D printing these batman weapons and yeah. anarchy's doing it to kind of prove a point to batman that um he he's part of the system you know even though batman is a vigilante and you know by definition is not part of the system certainly sees himself not as part of the the, the fascist as anarchy puts it fascist system to control people but Anarchy's point is that that people are and throughout at the end of the story with some people actually printing these weapons that Anarchy has supplied and then use them to help Batman defeat Anarchy. Sort of the definition of irony, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's again a chance for some lesser-known creators to sh- to show what they can do. Um, I don't think the story is particularly memorable, but it's again, a chance for these creators to show uh, what they can do. So I thought it was fine, um, but it's probably not something that's going to stick with me long term.
1: Uh, I I tend to agree with you that the title of the story uh, and the the writer Yadoi. Travis uh, it's called utility I'm assuming in my mind I think of utility I think of utility belt because it's a Batman story and the fact that he or anarchy puts out these designs of all these items that are in Batman's utility belt in particular the Batarang and a lot of the kids seem to be using them and ironically enough as you said the, the kids end up designing the Batarang that end up helping Batman defeat An- anarchy at the end I wasn't really sure what the point of anarchy was in doing that it didn't really I don't think it made a lot of sense to me uh, in terms of his motive uh, but it was uh, it was a i guess a decent enough story and it it made me chuckle a little bit because it sort of made me realize that there, every now and then a batman story comes out that gives you a hint of the real world i mean I mean, it's surprising that maybe other villains haven't done what Batman has because, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of batarangs lying around Gotham because they're discarded. And I'm I'm surprised, you know, more villains haven't done what Anarchy does in this issue. So I got a chuckle out of it, but not a bad first attempt for a writer. At least I'm it's a first I'm, I'm not familiar with this writer. It's the first time for me, but not a bad, not a bad story. But like I said, I think ultimately not particularly memorable.
0: Yeah, and the only thing I can think, I mean, Anarchy gives his reasons, and Anarchy's reasoning is never particularly on point for me. He's always sort of self-deluded. He comes across that way to me anyway. But if I have to assign a point, it's like, hey, Batman, you're not so special. Anybody can do what <laughs> you They just need these weapons, right? But it doesn't exactly go, go that way uh, yeah. in the long run. So uh, next up, we have that Dennis Culver story, as I mentioned. Uh, it's called Little Kitten, and we get some insight into this Little Kitten character that is going to be a member of the Arkham Academy. Uh, I talked to Dennis Culver about um, about Arkham Academy at the Los Angeles Comic-Con recently. He's not sure what's going to come after these three uh, issues, a three-part story, but he certainly hopes that something else will come out of it. We'll have to wait and see. Um, but it's pretty interesting because, you know, when I was speaking to him, I'm like, I don't know what to expect from this Arkham Academy. These kids are all sons and daughters of supervillains. Does that mean they want to follow in their in the footsteps of their parents? Do they want to go the other way and they're going to be heroes because they've seen the bad things that have happened to their parents? Is it the school, the Arkham Academy itself that's going to exploit them? Like all that is still up in the air. That's kind of the point of the story. So I kind of hope that we see more of, of these stories. Um, But this little kitten, he's got a a little bit of a mouth on him and uh, Killer Croc doesn't exactly take it. Well, I guess you'd say uh, when he goes not in to, talk to this. Yeah, he goes in to talk to this classroom of kids. <laughs> it sort what? of seems. Yeah, it sort of seems like a like a scared straight type situation. If that's the case, based on what happens to the little kitten on the last page, I would think that it would be very effective. Um, so yeah, I, this this story in and, in and of itself may not be that in, impactful or have long lasting consequences, but I think what this story shows the second part of this uh, Arkham Academy is the potential like this, this Arkham Academy storyline and concept has a lot of potential. Um, Certainly to see some Batman villains in a different context. And, uh, and it's compelling to see like what might happen to these characters, because as Dennis told me, it's like some, some of these kids may follow in their parents' footsteps. Some of them may become heroes instead. And whether or not the, the, the people running the academy might not exploit them, um, you know, sort of a granny goodness type situation would be, you know, another another storyline that you could, could go down another uh, avenue. So, uh, yeah, I'm very intrigued by this and I
1: hope we get more than just these three parts. What do you think? I absolutely agree. This is my by far my favorite story, my my favorite three my my favorite story in Batman Urban Legends as of late. And first of all, absolutely, I mean, I'm a speculator as well as a collector, like so many of us are. Uh, speculator alert on the cover. If you're picking up a cover, pick up the cover. It shows the entire f- first year class of Aca- of Arkham Academy. This is uh, pl- people do not be dismayed by the disastrous Teen Titans Academy. One of the criticisms of Teen Titans Academy, uh, written by Tim Sheridan, is that we rarely saw the the, the the actual students in the class. And frankly, they were thoroughly uninteresting characters. <laughs> and But these are interesting characters. Storn, Little Kitten, Enigma, Death Trap, The Noise, Wannabe Wilson, uh, the teachers, Dr. Otis, and we got two officers, Wise and Horn. The names are even more interesting. This is how you do, this is how you pull people into a potential like school class of, of potential superheroes slash supervillains. And don't be fooled by the name Little Kitten. This guy's Little Kitten, but he's a wannabe Catwoman son kick. He's a, he's a he's a he's a he's a guy who wanted to be a r- young man that wanted to be a rapper, but he ends up being a failure. He's a failed rapper and then he tries to he's tried to commit some crimes to get the attention of Catwoman and he and he utterly failed and and uh, he even refused. He could have gotten off with a slap on the wrist with the legal system in Gotham. He had a good lawyer, but he wanted to do the time because he wants to build a reputation. So this little kitten, he's kind of a he's kind of a, he's a juvenile delinquent plain and simple. And and this you know Dr. Otis is trying to scare the kids and that's why she sends Killer Croc into this classroom and it's perfect because and 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 Dennis Culver well I mean he's the writer he says the obvious but he did, he didn't need to tell you you restate you stated what Dennis Culver said but it's obvious from this story that one of the questions I have as the reader is which one of these kids is going to end up in the straight and narrow? Which one of these kids is going to end up being a supervillain? And I think the potential for misdirection, the, the, the potential for drama, for character development, it's all here. I'm pulled in, and I was pulled in in the first issue. This one pulls me in even farther uh, because these are kids that are willing to push the envelope against someone like Killer Croc. So these are, these are very, very... Uh, qu- it's a question mark, the future of what these kids are. But this is how you get me interested. Uh, I'm, I'm as excited for this as I am for, you know, as I am for Strange Academy. Uh, this is more interesting to me than even Gotham Academy. Arkham Academy is where it's at. And I still say between Arkham Academy, Gotham Academy, Teen Titans Academy, we have potential for a, a very intriguing uh, rivalry between all those academies if DC Comics could get their act together and do it right. Dennis Culver, to his credit, is doing this right.
0: Yeah. You're talking like a big Quidditch tournament between all four academies. Or? Yeah.
1: Wh- whatever, man, whatever, whatever it is in the DC universe. <laughs> uh,
0: all right. Last story, Batman murder club, part three of four. We know uh, a bit of a time travel story with, uh, with Bruce's parents showing back up. And uh, what I appreciated that Joey Esposito did in this last issue is Batman, Damien, even Bruce's parents themselves are are asking the same questions that we're asking. Like, okay, well, is having Thomas and Martha brought forward in time from before they died, like, how's that going to affect the timeline? How's it going to screw things up? Do do they need to go back? How long do they have? So he's being very meta with it. So I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, the Vasco Gregev art has been fantastic throughout. So a really interesting story, and it's the other aspect of it that's a little more esoteric, I guess you could say, is the way the Waynes react when they find out Bruce is being Batman like is this the way you honor our legacy and is if if this were to stand if this continuity were to stand if if you take Bruce's parents from a time that they were but before they were killed and bring them forward and have them have a relationship with Bruce does it does it remove his reason for becoming Batman like how does that affect him like psychologically he he feels a little... Uncertain, which is uh, a very strange way for Batman to feel, for Bruce to feel. He's always so driven and so focused and so uh, dedicated to his mission. And it's very subtle here. And I, I'm giving Joey Esposito credit that that's how he's wanting Bruce to come across. Or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Um, but I think it, it really works. Um, and I, I'm enjoying the story. I'm, I'm sort of curious to see how it ends because it feels like it's a story that's much bigger than, than four parts. And, you know, this is the third part. We only have one left. Really don't know where it's going to go. I hope it doesn't resolve itself by just saying, okay, well, if we keep Thomas and Martha Wayne in the present time any longer, it's going to screw up everything. Well, like a flashpoint situation. So we just have to kind of put them in, put them back where they were and then, I mean, maybe that's why Bruce is so hesitant to even have any interactions with them. He doesn't want to have to relive the trauma of losing them all over again, but that'll feel sort of anticlimactic if they just put him back and sorry, they can't be saved. Uh, like then it's going to be like, what was the point of this, of this story? So, um, yeah, I'm curious. I, I, again, I think I'm giving Joey Esposito more credit than that. He's going to, he's trying to say something more than that. Um, so, I'm really curious to see what that's going to be, how this is all going to uh, wrap up in the fourth part. Uh, what were your thoughts on it?
1: I think you're on mute, Rocky. Sorry about that. Uh, the story involves this character, Time Commander, who sort of created the Murder Club in the future, allowing for it. Uh, you take a, uh, you, uh, you can time travel and you can get revenge on somebody you want to get revenge for. And then, uh, but his master plan went awry because he, he wanted to cover up the, 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 the crimes that even, so you could get revenge on somebody who wronged you in the past by time traveling and killing them. And this is the Murder Club. But then he created a pill to give to the, his clients that did this. So that they would lose their that it would uh erase their memory, but they end up dying as well. And somehow we still don't know how the Waynes who wants the who wanted to kill the Waynes and who brought the Waynes to the to the future and who would want to kill the Waynes anyway, since the Waynes we're destined to die in Crime alley anyway so why would you care but ultimately we're not really sure it ends up with uh, it ends up with uh, the it looks like a, the court of Owls ends up at the end of this but the character work is what I think works here and and there's some great moments where Alfred and, and Damien and Nightwing talk to Bruce's parents because Bruce's parents his father in particular is very upset with him you know how could you this isn't our legacy we didn't we, we, we gave you everything and and, and you're this vigilante. And and dis- they seem to be disappointed, or at least Thomas Williams seems to be disappointed in his son. Uh, very different than a Flashpoint Batman, by the way. Very different take. And and it's up to Alfred showing, Alfred's always kept scrapbooks. And the moments where Alfred's showing his scrapbooks to the Wayne's and showing, you know, look, your son is amazing. He saved so many lives. This is what he's done. And it's in, it's in those character moments where I, I think that this is going to be, that. that's the true heart and soul of this story is, is those character moments as opposed to the, the larger plot itself and in that respect i think it works and it'll make for i think it'll make for a nice story when it, when it wraps up oh sorry you're on mute now <laughs>
0: yeah no, no we terrible yeah i, th- I think uh, i agree with you and we'll have to see how it uh, how it finishes up with that uh with that final story so uh all right batman and robin number four is up next for some reason i thought this was only a four issue series there is one to go um, but I think it doesn't come out until February for whatever reason. Um, Cause this, this sort of felt like this could be the last issue. Um, and I, I really, really didn't even realize that there's another one to go, but anyway, written by Mark Wade, uh, Mahmoud Azrar and Scott Godlewski are the artists, Jordan Biller on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Um, this hasn't been my favorite. This Batman versus Robin uh, it comes out of what we had in the Robin series. uh, by Joshua Wimpson with Lazarus Island. Uh, We know that the demon Nezha has taken over Damien. Damien's sort of his disciple. They've been going around kidnapping all these magic users and stealing their magic. Um, And we're reaching the climax here as Batman's been lured lured to Lazarus Island. Um, I guess because Nezha thinks that Batman can disrupt his plans and he wants Damien to take out his father. I guess because he thinks that that will mean his control over Damien is complete. That's never been quite clear to me. Um, but of course, Batman being Batman sort of turns the tables um, on Nesha in this uh, in this issue. So I, I, again, I just thought this was okay. Um, I'm probably going to be happy once we're on the other side of Lazarus Island because as I said, magic is never my favorite to, to read about in comics only because if a writer can't figure out what to do oh just snap their fingers and have a spell and fixes everything and yeah it's a little bit too uh ex deus machina for me um but i will give a lot of credit to mark wade as always um that this is well plotted and well scripted and well paced uh and the art's pretty solid as well so it's a good story it's just not my particular cup of tea so uh, I think you're enjoying a lot more than me, Rocky. What did you think?
1: Well, uh, judging from your uh, very, uh, very short review, I, I think I am enjoying it more than you, my friend. <laughs> I I love it. I mean, look, I, Doctor, I mean, Doctor Face helmet on Batman. I mean, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm playing with my action figures and changing heads between the action figures. I mean, it's, um, uh, this is, uh, you know, Batman wants to free his son Damien from the control of the demon Nessa. The demon Nessa wants to get revenge on Batman because in the world's finest Story told by Mark Wade in the first six issues: uh, Batman and Superman caged the demon ne- Nezha. He was eventually freed, uh, ironically, by Damien. and Damien's now used as a vehicle in, in which to get revenge upon Batman. And Batman here, uh, Wade Mark Wade does a good job of scripting Batman's intelligence and strategic uh, strategic capabilities. In that Batman uh, goes ahead and he, he cases the joint, he cases the cave, uh, uh, one time to get get. It, get his bearings and then he goes he fights his son Damien and Wade, Wade does a good job sort of uh, scripting how how Batman is fighting his son Damien Damien is a very good fighter yeah, Wade is aware that Damien is aware of some fighting styles that even Batman is not Batman even compliments he makes note of how how good a fighter Damien is and that's consistent with the Robin series by Joshua Williamson where Robin did Damien Wayne did get a lot of experience with different fighting styles and ultimately winning that tournament on Lazarus Island and uh, and ultimately uh, but this is all a ruse in order to allow uh, because what he did is that he freed Talia Talia was captured by the demonessa and just as the demon arrives on the scene to watch Damien defeat Batman Talia shows up takes out the uh, and distracts the demon uh, Neha and uh, and Batman manages uh, in that in that uh, moment to uh, have with the help of Black Alice, he sees the the, the helmet of Nabu, and he gets the the helmet of Nabu, and is is basically utilizing the power of because Doctor Fate's helmet is imbued with all the magical energies of all the magic bears that that Nessa had Black Alice filter the magic into, and so Batman. Batman, even though he's not a very good magic user, it's still a very powerful helmet, and he's able to hold his own against the Demon Nezha, but not before he is uh, mortally injured. But ultimately healed near the end of it, um, and then uh, Black Bull shows up, and that's, uh, or rather, the uh, Doctor uh, or, uh, the Demon Nezha's uh, son, um, King uh, King Bullfire. And that's from that's from the um, uh, Monkey Prince series. He shows up uh, in order to kill his father, the demon Nezha. And in that in that in that fight, the, the Lazarus Island essentially explodes, and because a uh, bullfire uh is. Is basically vowing revenge, and the entire planet will suffer if he doesn't have his revenge against his father. And this will lead into this is going to be continued in Lazarus Planet Alpha Number One, and then return back for Batman versus Robin uh, Issue Five in uh, February, on February twenty eighth. So uh, I'm excited for this, and I think this is th- there's consistency here with the story that Wade is telling. What I love what Mark Wade is doing is he's doing what John's what Jeff Johns is doing. In the world of Stargirl and the Lost Children and Justice Society, Mark Wade is doing with Lazarus Planet and World's Finest. And I really like the fact that they got their own little worlds that they're playing in and they're not inconsistent with each other. So I'm I'm enjoying
0: it. Yeah, uh, I, I can't argue that he's not being consistent and he's not building on what Williamson did and what he did in his own World's Finest. But again, I, I think it's just my... I'm just not that interested in magic users regardless of whether it's DC, Marvel or, or something else. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it ends with the Batman using the helmet, as you said, which that was cool. Like seeing Batman put the fate helmet on was cool, okay. but then seeing the Island explode and we know, you know, Lazarus Island is a big event coming up. Lazarus Island actually a volcano and explodes and, uh, okay. Lazarus pit, Juices or whatever you want to call it, liquid is spilling out everywhere. We have <laughs> seen some some mashups of other characters, not just Batman, Dr. Fate, but yeah, I, I'm curious to see what it's going to be. I just don't know how much I'm going to enjoy uh, Lazarus Planet. So I guess we'll wait and have, wait, have to wait and see. Uh, but speaking of Mark Wade's World's Finest, issue 10 is out uh, today as well. He is the writer, Dan Mora, the artist, Tamra Bon on color, Steve Wands on letters. Um, I really enjoyed this and uh I, I I saw some articles and people talking about the the big reveal in this book and maybe you know, people will go back and pick up some want to pick up issues of 7 8 9 based on who uh, this boy thunder turns out to be. I kind of have my doubts about that cuz it's not like this is a first appearance of of anybody. Um so will it really matter? I mean, first chronological appearance, I guess, but not first publishing appearance. Um, but it's pretty interesting what Wade is doing. Um, although some, I could see some fans maybe complaining that he's going back and highlighting his own stuff. Um, tying into stuff he's done in the past, but I think every writer does that to some extent. So I, I didn't mind it. And uh, again, really fast paced, tons of action. And, uh, I didn't see this one coming, I got to admit. So uh, I'll let you take over Rocky and kind of spill the beans on who Boy Thunder turns out to be.
1: Well, uh, well, the issue starts off we know that the boy Thunder, uh, David and that's really all we really knew about his name his name is David it was he's, he was captured by the key in the Joker last issue and this issue starts off with him being tortured the Joker is questioning uh, young David he wants to know the secret identities of Batman and Superman and David won't tell him and of course the Joker is pretty good at psychological uh, torment and torture and that's exactly what he does to David meanwhile uh, the Wade does a good job saying Scripting the detective detective work done by Batman and the and the work done by Superman. This is a very angry Superman, as Batman says. When Superman is you know uh, Superman can handle grief well, but he's not good at handling his anger. And Superman is angry, and he's looking for David. Batman's looking for David. Uh, the Teen Titans are looking for David all throughout Gotham, and ultimately they do find David. They find a warehouse where 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 the key is uh, has all his doors and. And they got it. Then, then the mystery becomes: How do they know which door? Which door is the Joker and the key behind that they're torturing David on? And ultimately, Batman, of course, says, "Well, you know, the Joker wears gloves. The key doesn't wear gloves." So Superman uses his X, his X ray vision to find the door with the fingerprints of the key on it, and then ultimately, that's where they locate uh, the key and the Joker. Meanwhile, David is pleading for his life. Uh, the Joker takes a respite from torturing him, and the key is talking to David, and David fleeing for his life, says, I'm, I'm not even from here. I'm from a different universe. And so the key is all excited. Oh my God, there's a multiverse and you're, you're from another reality. And so the, the, this intrigues the key uh, because what is the key going to do with that information in regard to the origins of David? And um, ultimately... Uh, David is rescued, Superman and Batman and the Titans do manage to get in there to, to rescue him, and the revelation at the end is that, you know, David is, is attacking the Joker at the end, and he wants, he looks cruel, he looks mean, he looks like he wants to kill the Joker, and of course, Batman and Superman, you know, Robin is there saying, calm down, you know, don't, don't take the, you know, don't kill him, don't kill the Joker, and, And David looks, he's got that glowing bright eye and then there's a peek into the future and it looks like David will one day become the character known as Magog. And... Magog being, of course, the, the arch nemesis uh, of the the antagonist of the famous Kingdom Come storyline, which was written by Mark Waid. What's very fascinating about this is that Magog has a long history in the DC universe since Kingdom Come. He was actually a, a Lance Corporal David Reed uh, uh, who was a Marine assigned uh, to stop the looting of a National Museum in Iraq during the Iraq War. And this was in 2008- 2009 during the Justice Society of America comic book run. And and he actually ended up becoming Magog as a result of that, and uh, but, and the only similarity between that origin or Magog was that that character's name was David Reed, Well, this character's name is David, but his last name in my knowledge is not Reed, so Mark Wade did sort of give us a little bit of a hint with the name David, but wow, who would have got, guessed that, you know, it makes me wonder, is this storyline taking place... On earth 22, is this a kingdom come earth? I doubt it. This is probably isn't. This is probably a magog of a different story of of our earth. So is David going to be able to prevent... Fate to prevent the kingdom coming reality from coming to reality on Earth Zero. We don't know, but I love the fact that Mark Wade is going there. He's planting that seed, and he's doing it in an interesting way. And this is infinitely more interesting than the Magog character in, in the in the mid to, mid to late two thousands that everybody hated. Magog even had his his own series for a period of time, and it only lasted twelve issues, and it wasn't very good. It, it was canceled due to low sales, and it wasn't an inter- Magog never been a particularly interesting character. The most interesting has ever been has was was in Kingdom Come. And so it's nice to see Mark Wade. It's appropriate that Mark Wade is doing this. I find this origin more interesting as a potential origin for Magog than I do in any previous iteration of the character since Kingdom Come. So I enjoyed it. So uh, what what do you think of the revelation?
0: Yeah, again, I didn't see it coming at all and to me what's most interesting it isn't even David or that David might be Magog or a different version of Magog or or any of that. Like the most interesting part of this is this hint that David could possibly become Magog and the context that brings to his relationship with Bruce and Superman in present day and the Titans as well, right? Because he's sort of a de facto member of the, the Teen Titans in this story, in this reality. So can Superman and, and Bruce, um, can their tutelage can, um, the camaraderie of the other Titans, can it put this David on a different path um, where he maybe won't become Magog? Um, that's interesting to me. And then the other part of it is, is like, well, David, it's the Joker. Just go ahead and kill him, man. Like I'm all for that. <laughs> the Joker's just a piece of guy ah, who can blame David. Yeah. He was being like, tort- like, here's this poor kid. That's already been through all this trauma. It's not just that he lost his parents or he lost his world, you know, like, oh, Krypton exploded. That's terrible. This guy lost his whole reality. His entire universe, his entire multiverse, you know, his entire corner of the multiverse was wiped out. Like how much trauma is one kid supposed to go through? Now he's being tortured by this insane clown. Can't blame him for wanting to kill the Joker. Um, So, yeah, Uh, again, Mark Wade firing on all cylinders. Isn't it so great to have him back at DC? Don't get me wrong. I loved his work over uh at marvel especially his dr strange run but man i think the guy there's something special about him on dc characters in my mind
1: i agree absolutely uh
0: all right so this is one that we we'll probably have a lot to say about <laughs> at a later time because it's hard to unpack everything that is here but uh dc crisis on infinite earth number seven dawn of dc joshua williamson handles the script daniel Sampere, jack herbert giuseppe Camoncoli, coley cam smith and rafa sandoval on art, Alejandro Sanchez, Alex Gourmas, Romulo Fardo Jr., Matt Hermes on colors. Tom Napolitano handles the, the letters. Um, uh, unfortunately, you know, from the start, this series didn't really ever coalesce for me and tell a, a a story that I found compelling. I will say that in the end, with everything sort of wrapping up here, it, it does a good enough job doing what I think it was supposed to do, which is providing a soft reset for the, the DC universe. Um, but in a way, and it's sort of, this is sort of acknowledged in the issue itself, in a way it feels a little bit like a cheat, right? Like we were told there was this, or we assumed, I assumed there was this big bad, there was this entity uh, that was controlling the great darkness that recruited Pariah And then come to find out it was just a great darkness, which never made sense to me because it wasn't completely sentient. And then come to find out it's Pariah himself who's been diluted. I just don't think Pariah works that way. wasn't created that way. Um, didn't have a lot of agency even back in the original crisis on infinite earth. So I don't think it was necessarily a good choice for this. Um, And yet you kind of can't blame him for doing what he did because, again, this idea of going through all this trauma. Um, But then even the heroes themselves are like, so, yeah, we get what Pariah did. He he sort of deluded himself. He was hearing voices. He took a little bit of the Great Darkness, but not all of it because he couldn't control it all because he's not powerful enough. But ultimately what he was doing was wanting to restore the multiverse, which isn't a bad thing. So, So it's like... Yeah. Wait, what? Uh, so, why were you trying to stop him in the first place? Couldn't? It, it just feels like it's one of these things. Uh, like you all could have just sat down and talked and and restored the multiverse by working together instead of having all these battles that sort of seem pointless. Um, and then ultimately, it's it's the nihilism of of Deathstroke here that even once Pariah is defeated, as we saw last year, where he shot with the cannon with Deathstroke being infected with the Great Darkness, he's like, well, yeah, maybe Pariah wasn't really that bad after all because he was trying to restore the multiverse, but what being infected with the Great Darkness has shown me is just how much pain there is in the world, and I don't want my kids to ever feel any pain, so I'm just going to destroy reality. Like, really? First of all, to me, again, much like Pariah being a poor choice, I think Deathstroke's a poor, poor choice. You you have all these like cosmic-level villains from Darkseid to... Anti Monitor to uh, you could even done something with Phantom Stranger or Spectre or or come up with somebody new even um, the World Forger but really Death Deathstroke is your your like reality destroying villain here like it just it just doesn't really make sense I, my my contention and I think I said it last time we talked about the last issue it might even have been you um, the Anti Monitor the Anti Monitor should have been the one that came back and did the... if you really want to. Homage, Christ on Infinite Earth. You should have just brought the anti-monarch back. That that would have been that would have made more sense to me. Um, but again, it's not all bad because it, it is a soft reset. It does give DC editorial a chance to make some changes. Hopefully, they bring Alfred back. They're not going to de-age John Kent. Sorry, everybody. You, I might want that. You might want that. That's not going to happen. Um, but there are some cool things. I think the changes they made to Doctor Light character are interesting. Uh, and it opens up some some ideas going forward that can be kind of fun. Plus, we got some fantastic – if no other reason that I like the fact that this series exists for the incredible Daniel Samper art, there's this two-page spread where almost the entire pantheon of DC heroes gets black-atomized. Oh, I don't know. That's not really a word, but I just made it one. Uh, but they all, they're all kind of black and gold and shiny, like Black Adam is. Uh, and that's a fantastic double page spread, even if the stars on Donna Troy are a little problematic because um, they kind of look like pasties on her chest, um, which just <laughs> like, I'm sure Daniel put them where he did so that they, you know, weren't like at, like place like pasties would look. But it's it's still I can't look at that and not not think that and not that I've spent a lot of time in strip clubs or anything, but it just my eye keeps getting <laughs> drawn to those stars on Donna Troy's chest. Um, but regardless of that, it's a fantastic image. And Daniel killed himself on the series. And man, uh, I just, I love it. Like, I can see myself going back through and, and flipping through pages of the series. Not, not to necessarily read the story again, but just to look at this art, man. Just gorgeous. So very happy for him that he got to do a, a big event like this. And very excited to see what he does next. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. And let you talk about it because I know you'll probably bring up the epilogue uh, because I just finished talking to Jeremy Adams and even he has some questions about the epilogue that you guys all hear in the 12 Days of the Comic Source episode coming up with Jeremy <laughs> Adams in a few days. Um, yeah. But yeah go ahead give us your thoughts rocky and then we'll
1: talk about that well first just to build on what you're saying i mean you're right that we, we can't we we can't do this justice we could talk for for three hours easy just on this issue alone there there's so much there's so much information in this issue uh, a lot of it is contradictory somewhat confusing and it 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 Again, inherent contradictions to the previous issues i 'm not sure what Williamson wanted to do. He crams in an epilogue uh, epilogue with uh Teasing future directions that, quite frankly, don't really excite me too much, to be honest. And it, it, it just seems like he was writing for editorial. He was writing to, toward a, pre, uh, a preformed agenda. Which, uh, even if that was the, if that's true, and I believe it is true, it, the story shouldn't feel like as forced as it has been. This was a Nightwing story. This wasn't a, this wasn't a Dark Crisis. This absolutely was not, in any way, shape, or form, in my view, a sequel to the original Crisis. It's an insult to call this a crisis let alone a sequel to the original one. Shame on DC. This was a Nightwing story. How many issues did we get Nightwing fighting Deathstroke? I mean, really. And the final insult on this, and there's a lot of insults to be made, is we don't know who the villain is. Joshua Williamson never established who the villain is. As a matter of fact, there's a page where Mr. Terrific actually jokes that they don't know who the villain is. It's, it's, I mean, I'm going to... it's unbelievable that the page is is ridiculous. Uh, he says, uh, Mr. Terrific, talking to Zatanna, says, what did you find, Zatanna? She says, Zatanna says, the great darkness continues to rest, quiet again and unconcerned with us. It proves, it proves, apparently, that Pariah's machine allowed him to tap into just a fraction of the darkness's true powers. Hal Jordan then responds and says, so Pariah was never connected to the great darkness? It was all in his head? No, Hal Jordan, that's not what Zatanna just said. Zatanna just said he tapped into the darkness. Are you retarded, Hal Jordan? It's not Hal Jordan, it's the writing. This makes no sense. We don't know who the villain is. We thought it was the Great Darkness, it wasn't. We thought it was Dark Side, it wasn't. We thought it was the Dark Army, it wasn't. We thought it was Pariah, it wasn't. We then thought it was Deathstroke, it wasn't. Was it, it's, it wasn't Nightwing, even though he gets possessed by the Great Darkness here. We don't know who the villain is here, and apparently nobody cares. Nobody cares. Barry Allen says that uh, you know. uh says to Barry, you know, what do we tell people? What do we tell people had happened here? And and Barry Allen says nothing. They they can believe it was the great darkness if that will help ease their worries. <laughs> Well thank you Barry. You're just a stellar of uh, optimism. You know, it's just so filled with hope. Not a big deal. We don't know what who we don't know who who's to blame for this multiversal crisis. And then what does Mr. Terrific say? That seems fair. And he has this shit-eaten grin on his face. I actually wanted to reach through the comic book meta and and, and strangle him. It just it's so frustrating. And uh it, and and if that, that isn't bad enough, We get to the end, and then after all they've been through, finally they've managed to overcome this great darkness or slash villain who's never identified. And Batman decides that, well, since we we, we don't know who this great villain was of this multiversal crisis... I know what I'm going to do. We're going to disband the Justice League. What a great time to disband the Justice League. Let's disband the Justice League. What better time to disband the Justice League just when we don't know who a multiversal villain was that created another crisis. And don't worry, we'll let Nightwing go form the Titans. Um, this is, from a storytelling point of view, this makes no sense, and it's just straight-up terrible. I don't like this. I don't like this. However... Am, am I am I excited for a, a new Titans led by led by Nightwing? Sure, but do we need to have a Justice League disbanded? No, but it's just foolish. Uh, we have uh, your favorite character, Amanda Waller. We got the introduction of the Council of Light at the end that wants to destroy metahumans because metahumans are a threat. And I will say that given the complete uselessness of the uh, of all the heroes in this particular series. Uh, I mean there really is a, an argument that can be made that heroes are the problem and so this council of light which are the these these group of beings from the young justice cartoon uh, animated series, and at least in the series on the cartoon, I believe it consists of Vandal Savage and Lex Luthor. And we don't know who the members are here, but the Council of Light believe that metahumans are a threat, and they hire Amanda Waller and a, and a new Suicide Squad apparently to take out uh, to take out the the all the metahumans, and and so that will be a future storyline as, as well. Uh, we then uh, there are. There's allusions to Lazarus Planet. There's allusions to storyline going on in the pages of Superman and with with failsafe. So there's uh, the epilogue just sort of recites some of those. We get a we get a great uh, we get a. Celebration of George Perez, one of the variant covers that I want to give a shout out to, the, the, the variant cover is absolutely fantastic, It uh, it's a tribute to George Perez, it's got multiple artists on it from Jim Lee, uh, Todd McFarlane, Joel Jones, Dave Gibbons, Daniel Samper, Dan Jurgens, uh, Kevin Maguire, uh, Francis Manipal, Mike McCone, uh, Dave Gibbons, Scott Koblish, Colleen Duran, Phil Jimenez, Scott Collins, I could go on and on. Their artistic renditions are all on this alternate cover it 's the only cover I ordered by the way for this series. I would pay extra for it i, I don 't believe there 's an extra charge for it but because I have to say the other the other covers i what a disappointment on some of the other other covers for this uh, for this event because uh, You know, dawn of the DCU. This doesn't feel like the dawn of the DCU. This feels like the end of an era to me. The end of competent crisis level storytelling. Uh, The I'm not a big fan of this uh, of the way of the manner of which this story was told. Uh, Even uh, Nightwing somehow overcoming the Great Darkness. How does Nightwing overcome the Great Darkness? He gets infected with the Great Darkness after Black Adam calls down the lightning, which helps give all the other heroes some of his powers. It also helps to push out some of the darkness. The Great Darkness that possessed some of the heroes. Then it goes into uh, Deathstroke. Deathstroke is freed from the influence of the Great Darkness, but apparently Nightwing isn't. It goes into Nightwing, so then the, the lightning missed Nightwing, even though Nightwing is right beside, was near Black Adam when he called down the lightning. That's kind of odd. But Nightwing apparently resisted the Great Darkness. This great, all powerful force of all the multiverses, this Great Darkness, Nightwing can just float like the, the Messiah. He's the new Christ-like avatar of the DC Universe apparently and he can just think of hope and boom, the, the darkness just dissipates and disappears. Absolute nonsense, Duke up BS. If Joshua Williamson wanted to write a story about legacy, uh, then you could have told a story in the pages of Teen Titans, it could have been four issues long, and it would have, would have had more impact, more impact than this. As it stands, this just frustrates me to no end. Uh, Daniel Samper art is fantastic. Black Adam, fantastic. The way Black Adam steps up to the plate here, makes the sacrifice. This is awesome. This truly is. Uh, is this a celebration of legacy in the DCU? No, it isn't. It's a celebration of Nightwing. Nightwing might be legacy, but there was no leg, there was no other characters beyond Nightwing that really stood up to the plate. This was a failure in that regard. It was a name only, an idea of legacy because Nightwing was one of the first ones. Uh, But in any event, I don't mean to belittle it. It had its moments with great art and what have you. But at the end of the day, this was a failure. Finally, the Dark Army. What happened to the Dark Army? Apparently, they just went home. You know, Darkseid, Necron, all those multi-level threats. Oh, we're not possessed anymore by the Dark Knights. Let's just, let's just, we'll just leave. We'll just leave the battle scene. They just go home. That's it. (laughs) That's it. This is embarrassing. I mean, honestly, this is embarrassing. I am astonished by this. And the only character, the one good thing is that Green Arrow, the one character that I'm not a big Green Arrow fan, at least he got lost at the end of this. Unfortunately, he'll be found because Joshua Williamson obviously is doing a Green Arrow series, so that's rather convenient. I won't be collecting that because I have no, I have no concern about Green Arrow being found. What is to be pulled back into, a, in, into, into one of. I'm still too angry at the way this ended. Such a huge disappointment. Sorry for the rant, but that's how I feel. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, anyways. So, you, so you didn't like it? Oh, man. I, I Like I said, I love the art. Beautiful art. But no, I'm... Yeah, I can't disagree with a lot of what
0: you're saying. This was a Nightwing story. I think Joshua Williamson admitted that at some point. But yeah, there are... I mean, the problems are are, are many. Uh, just, you know, to focus on, on the positive, the art is fantastic. We're giving Daniel Sampere a lot of credit. I mean, there are other artists in this particular issue because it is oversized. Um, I don't know who did the pages with Black Adam. You mentioned hit, hit him being kind of a star of the series. I did like his characterization. What is interesting is when he does take on... Um, Deathstroke. Uh, Death, uh, Deathstroke, and then... After he's talking to the to the heroes, um, even though they they draw him as the the version of Black Adam that has hair and has the widow's peak, which I I enjoy, they do give him the rocks eyebrow raise at one point, and his face does resemble Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, uh, I was like, oh, so now we're drawing Black Adam even when he's not bald. We're drawing him with with. Uh, with the Rock's face, huh? Okay. with the What was it called? The pe- the people's eyebrow or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm not a wrestling fan, so I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, th- that's problematic enough with all that going on. And, and, you know, I, I mentioned one of the positives of this is kind of a soft reset and you can do whatever you want. Um, but I would like to know when, how, what happened on earth three with Amanda Waller? Why is she back? Like do, she was taking over Earth 3, she was getting her own Superman, like, all that's just gone? Because gone? time's gone by? Like, well, I,
1: I would imagine you You asked Jeremy Adams that question, is Jeremy Adams? He, he brought <laughs> it up!
0: Jeremy Adams brought it up! He's like, did I miss something? I was like, yeah, isn't she on Earth 3? And he's like, well, huh? If if they need somebody to tell that story, I, I, I got ideas. I'll tell that story. But even he, like this guy, works for DC, and even he's like, I don't, I don't know.
1: Like, I mean, he co-wrote World War. Be- he co-wrote War on Earth Three, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Good lord, man. So, yeah,
0: can we? I, I, I yeah, can we find out who? How? How is she back? I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not happy she's back. I can't stand Amanda Waller. We all know that. Happy to, Was happy to have her on Earth 3 and not be around ever. And and once again, like at, at what point do you stop pretending that she's anything but an outright villain? <laughs> she's just an outright villain. <laughs> yeah. Here she's being recruited by this Council of Light or whoever they are to take out all the superpowered beings, hero, villain, or otherwise in the DCU. Amanda Waller is a villain. 100%. <laughs> And if I had to choose between never reading another Joker story or never reading another Amanda Waller story, I hate to admit it but I'd have to stop and think about that. <laughs> I really would. As much as the Joker's overused, you could say that that maybe is the one thing about Amanda Waller, she's not over overused. Um, borderline, but yeah. I uh, don't know how she's back, but maybe we'll find out someday, who knows. Uh, Alright, up yeah. next we have DC vs. Vampires All Out War Part 6, written by Alex Packnadel and Matthew Rosenberg. Pencils, inks, and gray tones by Pasquale Colano. Red tones by Nicola Rahai. Letters by Troy Petrie. I was really confused by this issue only because I read the last issue of DC versus Vampires, the regular series first, being that I read last, or next week's issues before I read these. And then I went back and read this, and I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense now, and so does that ending. Um, the art, as you know, I'm not going to go over it again. Don't care for this black, white, and red. Uh, I think this book would be better served to have it all in color. Um, and there's nothing here that really is that memorable. I, I hated seeing this this version of Superman. Uh, cause that's kind of the focus of this issue. Superman battling this, this vampiric, almost evil Superman battling Deathstroke and Midnighter and Mary Marvel and Booster Gold. Um, it just, man, even Superman being bitten, I just don't think he, it turns him evil the way this, this Superman is in here. But I get it. You want to tell your story, you want to be shocking. Um, but yeah, this whole DC versus vampires, and I'll talk about it more next week when we get to the conclusion of it. Um, it just hasn't really worked for me, um, and the pacing, as I, I've mentioned before, it went from being this what felt like a small story, slowly paced, to this breakneck pace to tell this story that encompasses the entire DC universe and um, the, you know the entire Earth, and there's no sun, and yeah, it, it, it's big stakes. And big consequences and nobody is safe. And in those ways, I guess it's interesting and compelling. Um, cause anybody will die at any moment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not really for me. Um, so I just thought it was okay. The backup story with Poison Ivy by, uh, Mirka Andolfo. She writes and draws it with letters by Troy Petrie. Um, was more interesting to me. Um, but ultimately, again, it's, it's Black Ivy as, uh, a vampire apparently. And because she's not fully human, she's affected by the vampire virus, I'll call it, differently than people that are full human. She's part plant, um, so it makes her unique. And that, that's a more interesting idea that I'd like to see explored more. The other thing is the idea of, or the, um, the execution of the black and white and red art by Mirka Andolfo works a lot better. I think her art style is just more clean, uh, and it's easier to understand what's going on in the backup than in the main story. So uh, I enjoyed the backup here uh, a
1: lot more. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I think the heart, this was my favorite out of the, all of the six issues of the DCV vampires all out war. The this was my favorite issue because I think that I actually think that for me they, the the black white and red works best in this issue. I'm not a fan of it myself. I thought more of the issues were more confusing than they needed to be. I don't think it worked overall, but it worked better the best in this sixth and final issue leading into the the main series proper. The heart and soul of this all out war series for me has been the the relationship between Deathstroke and Mary Bromfield, i.e. Mary Marvel. Who would have thought? That you could write a story about a relationship, or basically a mentor-mentee or almost like just a friendship between Destro, Slade, and uh, Mary Bromfield. That's the heart and soul of this. And these, uh, what uh, what uh, Alex uh, Paquinell and Matthew Rosenberg do to great effect here in this issue is that they made me feel uh, they made me feel the emotion that Slade Wilson felt, sacrificing his life, uh, essentially getting killed by uh, Superman kills Slade Wilson. And, uh, he sacrifices his life. Mary, uh, Mary Marvel, uh, uh, killed, uh, essentially killed Billy Batson, killed Shazam in the uh, last issue and is afraid she's, as Mary Bromfield, she's afraid to turn back into Mary Marvel because she's afraid, uh, that she'll t- turn more as a vampire. But she, she turns back into Mary Marvel upon seeing that Deathstroke is killed. And she, she, she basically, uh, attacks Superman and, but she's ultimately, uh, she, she's ultimately uh, about to be defeated because Superman kills, he, Superman kills in a brutal matter. He rips apart Midnighter. He uses his heat vision. He, he literally cuts Booster Gold in half. I mean, he, he's absolutely brutal. He kills Azrael and he's about to kill Mary Marvel. And, but, but then Dead Man, Barry, Dead Man possesses the body of Slade Wilson. And it's such a touch. It's a gruesome moment. Slade Wilson, you know, uh, basically runs his swords to Superman. And as Superman dies, he has a vision of his, he calls to his, he talks to his dad as he dies and, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite the moment. And, and in particular, Mary, uh, Mary Marvel doesn't know that, you know, she held, she holds a dying Slade Wilson in her arms, but she doesn't, she doesn't realize that Deathstroke's already dead. She's actually talking to Boston Brand, who's possessed in his body, but yet she's she doesn't really realize that. And of course, no one wants to tell her the truth because it's such a heartfelt moment. And I thought it worked really well. I thought the character moments here it worked. I felt it, and the art never took never took away those moments as it had in my view in some of the previous issues because of the uh, the the, the uh, black, white, and red. So I thought it worked, and uh, I was less impressed with thirst. Although I will say that uh, Marco and I'm not a big fan of her artistic style, but it absolutely works here with the black, white, and red in the backup. Uh, It's just, I'm not, you know, we're near the end of this series, so knowing that yet another iteration of of Poison Ivy doesn't particularly interest me, but it adds more to the mythology here. So, overall, I thought this was the best issue, and I'm really looking forward to Mary Marvel at the end of this uh, taking... uh, Uh, Captain Cold and they're going to be off to Australia uh, where Supergirl is uh, going to be uh, of course uh, that's in the the other DC Vampires main series where that where where that battle will be taking place so yeah this this is heating up and I think I'm hoping this will end on a high note this series hoping it will end well, I'm hoping this well. Uh, this series is over. I believe this is the final issue of All yeah. War, but the, the main yep. proper yep. series. I'm I'm yep. I'm hoping for a good ending. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, hoping for a good ending. I
0: yeah, again, I uh, spoilers because I've read it. Um, yeah, I was hoping for an, a good ending. Uh, as well, <laughs> um, and yeah, as, with with as you mentioned, a, a different iteration of Poison Ivy here as we're getting to the end of the story. But are we though? Are we at the end of the story? I think this will. <laughs> You know, like this. This has sold well, right? And I, I, I keep looking back at that. At not that I blame Tom Taylor, uh, for his deceased idea with the anti-life equation, and we saw how DC went back to the well on that again and again and again. So, do we think <laughs> that they won't go back to the well, of DC versus Pepper? Anyway, we'll talk more about it next week. Uh, I'll, I'll save my rant for that time. <laughs> um, but speaking of deceased, we've got deceased War of the Undead Gods issue number five. Written by the aforementioned Tom Taylor. Pencils by Trevor Hairsign and Neil Edwards. Inks by Andy Lanning and Edwards. Colors by Rain Barreto, Letters by Seda Temofante. Man, things are really heating up. This has been a fast-paced story all along. We saw Mixia's Piddalick show up at the end of last issue. We saw some disagreements between the Heroes of Earth and the Guardians. um, With the Guardians basically saying, yeah, you guys can't be going out there in the... In the universe, and distributing the antidote to the anti-life equation, we have to focus on protecting the the, the remaining planets that aren't affected um, from dark side. Rather than trying to save those that are already infected, they're willing to write them off as casualties. The heroes are not necessarily willing to do that, um, and so as they're trying to figure that out, um, unfortunately, Mixia's Pidilik becomes a, in, infected with the anti-life equation himself, which I, I have mixed feelings about it. It's cool to see him go kind of crazy and, and be this kind of evil force because he is so powerful, but rem- reminded early on in the issue of how powerful he is. It'll take him a split second to basically look at dark side and turn him into a sock puppet or something like that. And yet somehow dark side doesn't give him a chance to even do that. The line is, but he didn't even have time to think. Like, really? Mm, is that a thing? Like, you know, thinking happens at the speed of thought, speed of light. Like, it happens so quickly. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe Darkseid's a little too, po- too overpowered in this series. But uh, I'll give Tom Taylor credit. Like, I, I'm nitpicking here because overall, the story's just enjoyable, right? To see all this action, to see uh, these fantastic battles... Great artwork by Harrison and Edwards. And then uh, to give such agency to the Spectre, right? So one of the things that Mixius Pitilic does when he kind of goes crazy is not only does he destroy Kilowog's home planet, he destroys the central power battery on Oa. As all these lanterns are out there trying to stop Mixius Pitilic, trying to start stop Darkseid's army, trying to rescue people, trying to save Kilowog's home planet the batteries destroy while they're out there in space, while they're out there in the middle of battle, while they're flying. And all of a sudden they're suffocating in space. They're falling from the sky. um, And the, the uh, restored quintessence um, again, not sure how DC uh, DC's fits in with main continuity. Although we were told in the last issue of dark crisis that the quintessence, the quintessence was restored. Um, They're all just kind of sitting here going, well, uh, I guess We're giving up on this multiverse, on this reality, and we'll just wait for the next one to come around. And Spectre's like, screw you guys. This reality (laughs) is worth saving. Uh, And he goes and restores the power battery in a a matter of moments after it was destroyed, which prevents any of the uh, lanterns from dying, which I, I just really enjoyed, first of all, for a couple of reasons why this works for me. The Spectre's colors being white and green, so it really looks cool, on the page when he's holding the central power battery, this giant construct that powers all the lantern's willpower rings. Um, but the Spectre is such a huge beam, it looks just like the size of a regular lantern when one of the other la- green lanterns is holding it. And then the color scheme just works. And you have the tie-in or the history that Spectre has with uh, green lanterns, being that after... Hal Jordan, you know, the most famous Green Lantern of all, wa- became Parallax and then eventually was killed and became Spectre. He was the Spectre for a while. So there's that tie-in with this idea of Spectre as this uh, uh, spirit of vengeance, if you will, or, or uh, avatar of vengeance, uh, caring about the Green Lanterns. Uh, there's that that history that, that the character has with Hal Jordan and, and the rest of the Lanterns. So um, once he reconstructs the lantern and then he goes up and confronts Mixia's Pitalik and says, yes, I'm an agent of entropy. Uh, he says, yes, agent of entropy. That's how Mixius Pitalik is considering himself. Now that he's infected, I am the spirit of vengeance. Uh, and I'm very, very pissed off. Um, and he's about to go to battle with a sword in one hand and the green lantern battery in the other uh, against Mixia's Pitalik. So that's just cool. Um, regardless of how this kind of fits in. And if the DC storyline has gone on too long, or whether or not, uh, Mixious should have been able to defeat, um, Darkseid as soon as he laid eyes on him and, and never been infected in the first place. Like, that's all, that's all nitpicking. This is fun. This is awesome to see the Spectre with so much, uh, agency here. Um, cause I, I feel like the is a little underused these days. He, he's a character that should have his own, own series all the time in, in my mind at DC. Even, and I say that even as somebody that's not, again, not a big fan of the magic corner but his the specter to me he's not the, the typical kind of magic user he, he's a mystical character not necessarily a magical character if you can make that distinction you know a, a character that you know he's not going to perform spells and go you know look up spells or whatever yes he's super powerful yes he he is a character that seeks justice Yes, he has mystical powers and he's super powerful. But to me, there's a difference between that and, and magical. Yeah. And uh, he, he know, should be coming
1: I'm... back too, right? He should be coming back because he did merge with Jim Corrigan in the in the Dark yeah. Crisis tie-in a couple a gang war or whatever that was a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, hopefully we're going to be seeing more of
0: him uh, in the town yeah. of DC. I guess we'll see. Uh, anyway, what, what were your thoughts on this issue? Of, uh, uh, well, of
1: I. I I won't need to add, I will do I with your general sentiment, uh, the scenes you described, uh, one scene that stood out to me, I really enjoyed the final moments of uh, John Stewart and uh, Kilowog. Uh, they went to defend uh, Kilowog's planet of Bolivax Vic, 16 billion lives were wiped out, ultimately killed by Mixies Patelic, or Mixies Patelic, and the, the the final sacrifice made by John Stewart and... Uh, uh, Kilowog, I, I thought, you know, worked very well. Uh, you know, they, they went out like Marines, you know, like true warriors, you know, and, uh, I, I like that. Some good moments there. You know, Tom Taylor, you know, he, he can, uh, he nails those moments and he's, he's doing a good job in this series where combining both the character moments with really great action. And, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping he brings that same, uh, uh, you know, the one series where he never had enough action and too much character, I thought was in Superman, Son of Kal-El. And I hope that when he has, he does that, he does that, uh, sup- when he has that Ultraman crossover with John Kent and, uh, the, I Val Zod, I, I hope there's more action in that, in that series, uh, where, uh, young Superman, uh, just Son of Kal-El, actually hits somebody. But in any event, I, I enjoyed yeah, this- uh,
0: I'm glad this- you brought that up because I know you listened to my interview with Taylor and he mentioned, wanting that john that superman son of kal-el series wanting john never to have punched anybody and yeah. john does punch somebody at one point because yeah. it slipped by him and he didn't didn't realize yeah. it because you mentioned uh, the last time we were when we reviewed the final issue yeah uh, of that series about how it didn't have enough action and that was all purposeful i was
1: curious and, and that's what's so unfortunate about it it was designed to yeah. fail. Uh, I mean, I that was why I, I say that's why Super, the movie Superman Returns is largely considered a failure because he never hit anybody. Uh, I mean, you you can't to write an entire series. I mean, that's that's really what you want a new generation. That's how you're going to attract a new generation of fans to this character. Make him gay and make him not hit anybody. I mean, like the whole thing just seemed. I mean, talk about playing into every trope you can imagine. I, I respect Tom Taylor. I know what he was trying to say. I listened to your interview. It was very good uh and he was very frank and and i understand what what the purpose was i just thought that it was i I just respectfully disagree i think it was the wrong it was the wrong character choice at the wrong time in in my opinion because yeah he stands out he stands out as as is as if it was possible to be more boring than your dad congratulations john kent you're more boring than your father is (laughs) but that's that's Uh, me being harsh
0: are you are you familiar with the uh North American country-western singer, Kenny Rogers?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Kenny Rogers is. He has that song. My dad was a huge Kenny Rogers fan called Coward of the County, where the yeah. guy dies in prison and he gives his son the message, yeah. you don't yeah. have to fight to be a man. And then yeah. at the end, the the guy goes and beats up these kids. You,
1: um, you could he hear died. a pin drop as he stopped yeah. and locked the door. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: And these guys attacked his his woman. And so he goes and fights. And he, yeah. He tells his dad's picture at the end. He takes his yeah. dad's picture down to the fireplace and says, dad, sometimes you have to fight to be a man. That, that's the message that you're giving Tom Taylor. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You got to fight. Oh, Tom your boyfriend, whatever.
1: Yeah. So he's defending his boyfriend, whatever.
0: All right. Anyway, let's move on. You guys are like, what the hell did we tune into <laughs> In Roger's talk on the comic source? Uh, All right. GCPD, The Blue Wall, number three, written by John Ridley, drawn by Stefano Raphael, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Ariana Mayer. Now, this I haven't seen this covered anywhere. Uh, Again, I know this is coming out late, um, but I saw it on no comic news sites today. Um, Not sure, but speculator alert. uh, There's a big death that happens in this issue. So even if you don't regularly pick up this book, you might want to go pick up a copy put it in a bag and board, put it away for a rainy day. Um, it's pretty tragic, but oh. in this fish deer, <laughs> oh Renee God. Montoya's fish literally goes belly up. Huh. It's tragic.
1: It happens trigger, warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, yeah, trigger warning. It happens on the last page.
0: <laughs> clearly the last panel, she's there sitting with her uh, head in her hands as the fish floats in the bowl uh, in front of her uh, do I have what it takes? She says, <laughs> so if you guys are speculators, um, may, may want to pick this up other, other than that, uh, that traumatic event, I, I thought this was the best issue of the series so far. This is a very grounded story, despite the fact that it's in Gotham city, despite the fact that it has two face, who's clearly what we would consider a super villain. Um, this is just a very grounded story, very real, John Ridley, as he often does in his work, um, commenting on, on real-life situations of prejudice and racism and police uh, overreach and um, inequality and, and that sort of thing. Uh, minorities putting up with um, a system that's sort of systemically uh, racist, as it were. Um, and you, you can sort of see that Montoya, the decisions she's making, are, aren't even in her own best interest all stemming from the trauma and the history that she's had with Two-Face. So it's just very, very well done. It's a little bit slower paced. It feels a little bit deliberate. I like that it feels that way because it feels like it's building to something, building to something other than the death of the fish. Um, and I just really, really enjoyed it. And, and the art by um, Stefano Raphael is is, I wouldn't say photorealistic, but it is very grounded. Um, and so again, it gives it the, the feel of kind of, uh, almost a real world sort of story. So if you're you know, a fan of some, something like the Gotham TV show or, uh, or Gotham central, you know, uh, uh any of the, uh, what are they called law and order, um, shows, you know, those crime procedurals, I think you'll really enjoy this. This is, this is sort of like, um, the comic book equivalent of those, uh, those type of shows. Uh, something like the wire or um, or uh, homicide life on the street that that sort of thing, so uh yeah, I really enjoyed it despite the 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 um, sadness of of
1: the fish dying. Yeah. Uh, what did you think, Rob? Well, you know, we make a joke uh, uh I want to make very clear that if John Ridley is listening, not not that I would imagine he is, but if he is uh don't be dismayed, Mr. Ridley, because uh, the goldfish was a beautiful. Metaphor for the heart and soul of this story, which is excellent because. This is Rene Montoya. This is to me it almost plays out like a sequel to uh, Half a Life, which is that famous storyline where she outs herself. She comes out as a lesbian with Gotham Central, and and you know there's an officer Ortega in this series who uh, he he basically at one point he ends up complaining to, to his higher ups, and he complains to, uh, to Commissioner Montoya saying, "Look, you know they they on the bulletin board in the main uh, police uh, office they, they put up a picture of me El Gran Policia. They made a, making a mockery of my Mexican heritage, and and she basically tells him to suck it up you know, that this is Gotham. You gotta, you know, you gotta suck it up. You gotta deal with it. And she has flashbacks of of, P- of her fellow officers posting pictures of her kissing a woman uh, during the famous Gotham Central storyline written by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rocca. It's very well done. I love that, I love that John Ridley's he's done his homework here. And meanwhile, Renée Montoya is absolutely obsessed with taking out Two-Face. So obsessed that, because Two-Face humiliated her through, uh, again, a, a very famous storyline in, I believe it was in Gotham Central or i might i stand and be corrected on that but regardless she's obsessed with two-face she knows that ultimately two-face is going to screw up so much so that two-face ultimately throughout the course of the story he shows up and he tells it it's two-face himself who has to show up and tell renee let me go yes i'm screwed up yes i'm gonna relapse at some point i'm 2 Face essentially but there's nothing you can do about that you've, you've got to let it go just you know otherwise you 're just going to kill you 're just going to drive yourself crazy and that 's ultimately the lesson that the other officers here there 's officers uh sam and there's an there 's also another officer named Eric who wants to quit because he feels guilty for one of his parolees uh, who he ignored ended up committing this parole ended up uh, putting himself in harm 's way intentionally getting killed and the previous issue everything ties together here and the, the 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 death of the goldfish works so well because here we have on Toya telling all these care these these fellow officers do your job suck it up do your job. Meanwhile, other officers are telling her and Two Face himself saying, "Let it go, let it go. Your obsession, you 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 can't you can't do it all. It's it's it, Gotham is relentless. You got to take it day by day, and and you can't control how things work. And then at the end, just as she gets home. She finds out her goldfish dies, and the irony is that of all the things that seem to have an impact on her, she gets angry at everyone. Everyone else for for not sucking it up and just dealing with it, and then her goldfish dies, and and now it's her, it's the death of her goldfish that gives her. Some- the perspective that she was maybe searching for the entire issue, which I find kind of ironic. And when she asks herself, do I have what it takes? And she's the bloody commissioner. So this really, really worked well. This is by far probably the most, frankly, this is probably the best written comic of the week and probably one of the most underrated.
0: Yeah. Every time I read this, I'm just, it's, it's so subtle. The character work here is so subtle. Um, you, and you're just drawn into the story. It's, it's just brilliantly done. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, the aforementioned Jeremy Adams has Flash 789. He's the writer, Fernando Passerin on pencils, Matt Ryan on inks, Matt Herms on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Issue or the episode with him will be out in a couple of days. I definitely encourage you guys to go and, and chat about it. Uh, cause he talks about the choices that he made in this particular story. Um, with both Mayor Wolf and uh, the Pied Piper showing up, and uh, and the series overall, so much like uh, his entire Flash run has been, it's very much an adventure story. It's it's fun. It's all ages. It's Wally as a as a dad. It's Wally as a hero, and it's Wally. Uh, one of the best things I liked about this issue: Wally figuring out what the heck's going on. Like there's a there's a mystery. It's uh, Jeremy Adams paying off. Something that's been kind of a subplot in Flashbooks for, for years. Um, this idea that something was up with Gregory Wolf that we weren't aware of. Uh, and the fact that Wally West figures it out. I mean, Wally's not exactly known for his, his brains. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that that's, uh, that's a disservice to this guy sat on the Mobius chair. He knows a lot more. You know, he's not just the, the, the knucklehead titan or the, the, um, the, the follower, the, the foot soldier of the Titans anymore. Like he, he's a lot brighter than people give him credit for. And, and that's kind of showcased by him sort of solving the mystery of Gregory Wolf, uh, as it were. So, um, the art's fantastic by pastoring as it, uh, has been throughout the run. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, every time I read a flash comic, I can't help but smile. And, and it's just a reminder that comics are fun. Uh, especially these kind of comics, uh, from DC, and, uh, Jeremy Adams, man, he's so much one of us in terms of wanting continuity and wanting things to make sense and wanting people to have proper motivation and easily understand why they make the choices they make and that sort of stuff. And this is just an, another example of that. Uh, and I can't wait till his one minute war event starts where uh flash is going to go to two issues a month. Um, cause if there's one thing that I want, uh, I know I'm not getting it for Christmas. Um, but man, I would love—I would love to have more Jeremy Adams comics on the stands, uh, specifically DC Comics. I, I really, honestly, what I really would wish—if I had like my like—if I owned Warner Brothers, basically, if I owned AT&T, I own Discovery. You know what I would do? I would put Jeremy Adams in charge of DC Comics. I would make him—I would make him editor in chief. I don't know if he'd want the job, but uh, the ship would be righted, in my opinion, maybe better than. Well, uh, Anybody else? I I don't know if maybe I'd give him the job, but I'd give him I'd give him more comic books to write. I tell you that much. Uh, yeah, I think, I think him steering the ship would be fantastic. Not that you know Jeff Johns or Mark Wade might not do a good job as well. Um, but the thing about Jeremy is like, like, and I get it. Jeff Johns has done a lot of comics. He's ready to go do something else, film, TV, that kind of thing. I don't think Jeremy would want to do anything else other than just steer the, the ship of DC, you know, it'd be like one of us having the job. Um, so anyway, uh, I really enjoyed this issue. I'm loving flash. I've said it before, but this is my all time favorite flash era of all time. Jeremy Adams on the flash in my mind is surpasses everything. Even John's and Wade on the book. Uh, Cause he's, he's building on what has come before and bringing in guest stars and doing fun things like the wrestling issue. And, he just gets it, man. When it comes to to DC Comics, Jeremy Adams just gets it. Maybe I'm just on my high from from having spent the last hour talking to him, but uh, yeah, it's this is a fantastic issue.
1: What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And if you want if you want an encapsulation of just how well. Uh, Jeremy Adams understands Wally West. There is, there's a basically one full page where it has a lot of dialogue on it. In fact, this whole issue has a lot of dialogue on it. And normally I'm not a big fan. I mean, nine times out of ten, if you give me an issue and you tell me it has a lot of dialogue, I, more often than not, it's, it's, it's a less than stellar issue because it can be overwrought dialogue doesn't help, but it works in this issue here. And in particular, it works especially when in a speech, literally a speech or a, a, a kind of a rant that Wally West gives the Lord of Order, who has possessed uh Gregory, Mayor Gregory Wolf, which is, explains his actions. And he does such a great job, and it's Wally West explaining, explaining his past. And he sums up so well the last five years of the annoyances that we Wally West fans have had with the character that have finally been righted by Jeremy Adams, where he says, Wally says, "This is what I know. I am the Flash. I am the Unmoored, I have run through more worlds and dimensions than anyone in the universe. I've sat in the Mobius chair, done the bidding of Tempest Fuganot. I've knitted universes back together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can o- and he, he can only create things by choice, not but not through order. You can't impose order. If anybody can give advice to a Lord of Order, it is in fact Wally West, and his advice is better than any any advice that could have come from Batman or or any other super genius." or intellectual in the DC universe. This was an appropriate story to tell to sort of put it yet another icing, a nice capstone on Wally West returning in all his glory and perfect timing to right before the beginning of... One Minute War, which I'm so looking forward to. I have I have read the first chapter of One Minute War, and um, I, I think it promises to be a very, very interesting tale. And I, I know that you just interviewed uh, Jeremy Adams uh, uh, earlier today. I'm looking forward to that interview and uh, to see if he gives any teases or see, explain some of his process or what he, what he has going into this. But uh, what, a, what a great time to be a Flash fan. Yeah,
0: I can't, I can't, I can't argue with that. Uh, what I will say is there's not a lot – we do talk about One Minute War, not a lot of things given away. I'll, I'll put it that way, but just hearing Jeremy talk about Flash um, <laughs> and we talk about the Mobius chair and we talk about Wally, and, and all that, yeah, it's definitely worth your time uh, if you're a DC fan. Not just a Flash fan, but if you're a DC fan. Uh, all right, up next we have Nightwing Power Vacuum Part 3, written by Tom Taylor. Bruno Verdando is the artist. Uh, he also gets an assist by Geraldo <laughs> Borges. Uh, Cayo Felipe on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Um, this was a really great issue. Uh, again, uh, very indicative. This issue is very indicative of what Taylor and Redondo have have done all along with uh, with the Nightwing series. Some issues more successfully than others, and that's a balance of action and characterization. And granted, every issue can't be the perfect balance, and some issues of Nightwing have felt a little slower. Some have, we haven't gotten as much plot progression, but gotten a lot more action. Um, this one's a pretty good balance of both. We get Tony Zuko showing back up, uh, appealing to his daughter, who we know uh, claims to be the sister of Nightwing, and by all accounts, she, uh, well, I should say half-sister half of yeah. Racing. By all accounts, that's, that's actually true. Um, so seeing Zuko show up and try to take advantage of his relationship with his daughter and her kind of pushing back on that uh, to, to then going to this heretofore unseen location in Bloodhaven, this like lighthouse uh, that is, that has a a vault underneath it. That's called the hold, which is sort of this apparently secret society that also called themselves the hold um, that they seem to have some kind of mystical, magical powers um, and basically this is kind of like the blood Haven equivalent of, uh, Ing-Nots, right? Isn't that what it's called? The Harry Potter, um, uh, the bank in Harry Potter Oh where they, they, uh, where it's, <laughs> everything is much bigger than, uh, it appears on the outside. Okay. And there's right. all these vaults and this powerful gotcha. artifacts and, uh, diamonds and gems. And even Nightwing has, uh, a box, a safety deposit box there. And when he finds out, he's like, wait, what? Cause these guys tell him, yeah, box 538. Like, wait, what? Yeah, somebody opened, uh, an account for you, Nightwing and, uh, box 538 is, is yours. Um, it, that's the number of the safe belonging to you in the hold. So at some point, maybe Tom Taylor will get to pay that off. I, I guess we'll see. Um, but along with that action of, of Nightwing going out and stopping Zuko from robbing this, this hold, um, we get some fantastic characterization of, of Melanie Zuko and find, find out in a final insult to her supposed father. um, You know, she goes, I, I know the truth. You're not really my father. My father was John Grayson and I've changed my name. I'm now mayor Melinda Grayson Lynn. Uh, she doesn't even have the Zuko name and and you can see how pissed off Zuko is as she turns and walks away from the visitation area in the prison there. She says, the name Zuko will mean nothing in this city. It will fade away with you in prison. So (laughs) uh, that's just, yeah, yeah. I loved it. That brought a smile to my face. Um, Really like the personality that Taylor and Redondo are building for, uh, for Melinda, Grace and Lynn. Um, And then after that, um, Melinda goes and, and sits down with, with Dick and they're, they're chatting, um, about her father and how he took it. And uh, that interaction is, uh, is a lot of fun as well. So, um, yeah, this is, this issue, like I said, it really encapsulates what Taylor and Redondo are bringing to this book that feels really special and feels different from, um, from anything that's really come before in a Nightwing series, and, you know, we mentioned previously about how Dark Crisis really turned out to be a Nightwing story. But the problem with that is it, it was so many characters and so much plot stuffed into those seven issues that oftentimes didn't always make sense. But the characterization part of it was missing. And, I, and you know, that's not necessarily the fault of uh, Williamson because it was such a big event and he was trying to fit so many moving parts in there. But then when you turn around and read something like this, where it's the perfect balance of action and characterization, I mean, this gives me more of a sense of who Dick Grayson is and how he is, um, somebody that, that could do what he did in, um, in Dark Crisis, right? Where he overcomes, he's able to overcome the great darkness, even though so many other people weren't. But in that story, in Dark Crisis, you have no context. You have, you, at least I came away thinking, well, what has been shown to me about Dick Grayson in this story that makes me believe he could overcome that doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily buy it as opposed to in, in this where we see the way Dick Grayson fights, we see the way he acts, we see who he is. You would buy it more, right? You would believe it's more believable here. So um, again, Taylor doesn't have the restrictions of needing to have, you know, seventy-five characters or whatever it is on the page, and squeezing in all these other aspects of the DCU, it gets to focus just on Dick Grayson, Nightwing. So you can understand why it's easier for him. But man, this series—every uh, once in a while, there'd be a little bit of a down issue or an issue where it doesn't resonate with me. And then we get an issue like this where I remember why it's one of the best comics that DC's putting out right now. Like the whole Night uh, Night Might issue was—it was fun, but it wasn't anything like memorable. Um, but I go back and I think about that first issue that Tom Taylor did with the, the note from Alfred and how emotional that was. Um, this issue and yeah, perfect examples of, um, of a good balance of, of action and character. So I, I really enjoyed this issue.
1: What'd you think? Uh, it, it was more the, the, it's the plot elements that I enjoy more. I, I don't need I don't need yet more character development for Dick Grayson. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Tom Taylor he could write Dick Grayson in his sleep. He's that good at it. And I don't need a lot that much more character development of Dick Grayson. We keep getting it whether I want it or not. And and that's <laughs> that's an underhanded compliment, by the way. I just like the plot elements. I like the idea of this hold. This I, this is the first thing. I believe this is a speculator, alert, first mention of the hold. This idea that this is a secret sort of bank vault near Bloodhaven. Uh, that's kind of cool. And that, you know, uh, there's something in there in, 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 in stall 530, in say 538. That's for Dick Grayson. Uh, Maroney, uh, uh, Mayor Zuko, pardon me, uh, M- Maroney and Black Buster were taken off the table and, t- uh, Tony Zuko came and he knows that, that, uh, uh, the former, uh, mob boss Maroney has something in, in one of the safes at, at the, at, at this, at this, um, this, uh, this hold. And I like that. It's interesting. I like, I like the fact that she changed her name. I like the fact that, that his relationship with his sister, Melinda, it's developing. I like that. I'm. I'd still like a little bit more plot development. Dick Grayson talks here. He says, I have the start of an idea, but it's big and it's not all there yet for now. Well, I mean, his idea. Look, Dick, if your idea is to form the Titans and the only difference between this Titans and the other Titans is this Titans is now going to be in the Hall of Justice because the Justice League are a bunch of cowards now. And apparently they don't feel that they have any meaning anymore. You know, I think that's where this is going. That's me being kind of a cynical thing because I'm, I'm still I'm still having PTSD from my experience of reading Dark Crisis Number Seven. I apologize, but I I do think that uh, this is this is the one bright spot. You know what? The, the biggest bright spot of the DCU for the last year. DC had a lot of ups and downs. Some would say more downs, but the brightest spot of the DC universe over the last year and a half has been Nightwing. It's probably been the best handled character, arguably with the most, arguably the most development, even in the big event, because you could certainly make a compelling argument that the big event wasn't a sequel to DC's original original, uh, crisis on infinite earths. It was really a Nightwing centric big event. And, um, you know, this, this fits right into that. So, yeah, I think back to the days of night of
0: Nightwing of uh, of Rick Grayson, right? Of him getting shot yeah. by King Beast and having his memory erased and living in a different city. And I, I think it was a cab driver, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, yeah. Would anybody be saying, "Yeah, this is the best book DC's putting out"? So from that to this, <laughs> uh, credit, yeah, credit to Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. Uh, all right, up next we have Stargirl and the Lost Children number 2 by writer Jeff Johns. Todd Knock is the artist. Matt Herms on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Um, I'm really enjoying this, not, not least of which because I get to see Todd Knock interiors, which is fantastic. Uh, we haven't seen the villain Childminder yet, but we do know, do know that he's behind the kidnapping of these kids. Um, I'll give Jeff Johns a lot of credit for, even though this is a book, about uh, sidekicks that have been kidnapped and have been kind of lost to the annals of history. Um, And it gets kind of morose at times with Stargirl wondering if any of them are still alive. These are sidekicks from the 1940s. She's like, they'd they'd be in their 90s now. I hope we can find them. I hope even any of them are still alive and we don't just find a graveyard. Um, So it gets a little morose at times, but throughout that all, and it is helped by the aesthetic that Todd Knock brings to the art, it does feel like a lighthearted story somewhat. Um, you know, uh, a timeless story, a golden age story, if you will. So uh, I appreciate the aesthetic that they're they're bringing to it. Um, I haven't read a lot of Stargirl. You know, I read the Stargirl um, Spring Break Special that was done by the same creative team that kind of leads into this. But that came out like a year ago, over a year ago. Uh, and it took a while for uh, everything to get lined up for this to come out. I don't know if you guys heard my interview with Todd Knock that I did uh, a few days ago, but yes. uh, yeah, basically the, the pandemic kind of delayed everything, but I'm glad this is coming out now. I am enjoying it. I'm, I enjoy how this ties in with Flashpoint Beyond and with uh, what Jeff Johns is doing in JSA. And I find myself really enjoying Stargirl as a, as a character. And I think her being teamed up with Amiko is a, a good a good choice. I think they play off each other really well, and I uh, really enjoy their interactions. And uh, the colors as well really suit the the tone of the story and the line work that Todd Knox giving us very uh, primary colors, so it feels traditionally super heroic, um, and that suits this whole uh, story that Jeff Johns is telling, which is kind of harkens back to a more innocent time, uh, golden age of comics. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see who the childminder is and really maybe the thing I'm most curious about is to see these characters restored to the DC timeline, whatever that means and how, how much they'll show up who will take these toys out of the box and use them. Will will Jeff Johns even let anybody use them? Uh, <laughs> you want to be the only one or, you know, at some point, um, the cat's going to be out of the bag and these characters will show up in other books, one would
1: think. So what are your thoughts on this? I, The, the character work here by Jeff Jones, I think really works. You know, this, in a sense, this is, it starts off as essentially what appears to be a hunt for lost children, but these children existed, these were sidekicks that existed in the 1940s, so as Stargirl rightly points out in her conversations with Amiko, uh, the Red Arrow in this issue, it's like, well, if we find them, unless unless all these children are immortal, and what are the odds of that? I mean, they're going to be, they're probably all old and died by now, because the 1940s, it's a lot of time has passed, so, you know, they're, they're on the hunt, they're looking for these lost sidekicks, we know from last issue that Daniel, this Daniel Dunbar character ended up, who's also looking for them, who's Room that uh, Stargirl and and Amico end up in, they find out they find out they see all the research that he's done, and uh, in 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 their further uh, investigations they end up in the Arrow Cave. And I want to give Todd Nark uh, Todd Nark a, a huge compliment. The, his detail that he puts into the Arrow Cave here is just extraordinary. I absolutely love it. It's just it, it actually it gives the Bat Cave a pretty good run for its money. It's very well done. I quite like it. I the. The the work uh, the character work in particular with Amico Amico John does a good job of explaining it, the Amico is it's very. Emotional for Amiko, looking for the lost children, because as she describes, and I never actually thought of Amiko in this way before, that she was she felt abandoned on on the on the island where where Oliver Queen ultimately became Green Arrow. She was abandoned there, or she, or rather, she they didn't know she was there, and so for the longest time, she thought that they had forgotten about her. So she, if all the characters in this story, Amiko, can relate to that idea of being lost and thinking that you're never going to be found, and that's that's really at the heart and soul of this story, and at the end when they ultimately end up washing up on the shores of uh, washing up on the shores of this mysterious island, this orphan island as they call it, appropriately named uh, they run across they come across Wing, Cherry Bomb and, and Airwave who obviously haven't aged very much at all and they discover that the sand on the island is 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 made of the same sub- substance as the Miraclo pills that we know from comic book lore. Miraclo is a is Miracle pills were the pills that our man takes to give him enhanced strength and superhuman abilities, and so that's interesting, and it might explain the 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 tendency for the children, for all these lost children who are, in fact been kidnapped by this childminder who we don't know who it is uh, that explains why they haven't aged. But I thought this was very well done. I'm curious as to who the childminder is. I thought maybe it was Perdegaton and that maybe he's going by a different name or maybe childminder is a is, is pertegaton but a younger version of Perdegaton. But that's Knowing Jeff Johns, I'm sure he's coming up with something new and different. But I quite like this. I love the art. Art Todd Nark does such a fantastic job. There's there's a lot of crazy action sequences. Almost like there's like a bunch of it looks like a bunch of Humpty Dumpty mechanical Humpty Dumpty eggs attacking them on the island and that great great choreographed action sequences beautifully rendered, beautifully artistically choreographed. Very well done. Colors pop off the page. This is you know this is I'm so happy. This is only the second. Issue and we got four more. I, I wish this was a series. Quite frankly, I'm really enjoying this. So this is this is one of my. Uh, this was yeah. This is there's been good comics this week. Emotional comics that drove me crazy. Uh, <clears throat> dark Crisis, but this one I really liked.
0: Yeah, I, you can always count on Jeff Johns to go back to um, Stargirl at some point. Because keep in mind that she's partially based on his sister who tragically died in a in a plane crash. So it's yeah. um it's a character that's near and dear to his heart. And I don't think he ever will not have a, a star girl story in his back pocket at some point. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Catwoman furious hearts, part three of three written by Tinny Howard. Nico Leone is the artist Veronica Gandini on colors, Lucas Gattoni on letters. And there's an epilogue. I don't even know why it's necessarily called an epilogue or maybe they don't call it an epilogue. Maybe I'm misspeaking. Um, because we get a kind of a second part of the story here, the aftermath, they call it. Um, also written by Tinney Howard by different artists. We have Anaka Miranda, pages one through six, and then the incredible Juan Ferreira does the art on pages seven through 16. Uh, Juan Ferreira and Lee Luffridge on colors and Darren Bennett on letters. Um, I don't, I don't know that I'm gonna have that much to say about this. I really didn't care for it, to be honest. Um, so I'm gonna let you go first, Rocky. Give us your thoughts. Oh,
1: uh, well, this is, uh, you know, I was wondering because this was Catwoman 50. We never really got a lot of advertisement. I never heard DC really promoting this. And because we're coming up on Catwoman number 50, and you know, there's usually a propensity for uh, DC and Marvel that if you're coming up on a milestone number like that, I was expecting, is this going to be an oversized issue? Is this going to be something special? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, I never, frankly, paid much attention to the solicits. So maybe it was, it probably was in the solicits, but I never. I don't, if I read them I don't remember them something significant actually does happen in this issue very significant actually it's a it's a end of a it's part three of three of a storyline called furious hearts and we've known that Selena has been uh, developing feelings for this uh, new character Valmont and he's, he's somewhat of a mysterious character but he seemed to be somewhat of an antihero he we know he's killed before but we we got the sense that maybe his his morality his sense of what's good, right and wrong his been impacted by his by his relationship with Selena, which has been intimate, and he's and Selena herself is, you know, again she's, I, I I don't know. I mean, Batman here, Batman ends up showing up, and last issue Punchline has been trying to take over and try to establishing. Punchline is trying to establish a place in Gotham, and she's tried to take punchline has tried to take over a warehouse that was owned by Iko hasagawa who uh, uh who's a mobster and a former lover of Selina. and punchline it, of course ended up uh last issue stabbing Iko, and Batman. Warned punchline who managed to escape saying, Look, when Selena finds out that you stabbed Ico, you're gonna, you you wanna, you you better watch yourself. Well, Batman tells Selena here, and this is where the characterization gets a little wonky here. And, and I'm gonna do a little bit of a minor rant here. This is, this is not Frank Miller's Batman. Now, Frank Miller's Batman hasn't been with us for a while here, but I I keep thinking of that because this is a Batman that is ridiculously, I think, respectful of Selina. Like Batman, I know you've slept with the woman and I know you love her, but you know, Still maintain your own sense of agency here. He's still the the faith that he puts in Catwoman, saying, "Yes, I know. I'm. I promised. I'm just going to tell you, Punchline did this. But, but don't worry, I'll stay out of your way." I mean, he the way that he pussyfoot's around Selina here is kind of pathetic. I think, and it it's not in keeping with Batman's character. Uh, it, it just doesn't work for me. It's one thing to respect Selina. It's quite another to give her that much leeway, where he literally, Selina's actions here. Where she ultimately ends up saving Batman's life by ultimately protecting Batman by having what she believes it's necessary to actually kill Valmont who goes in to kill Batman. Batman uh, in, in an altercation has to is holding on a is holding on a, a piece of of ceiling that falls on is about to fall on Selina. Batman jumps in saves Selina, but unfortunately he has to. Um, uh, he, he can't let go of what he's holding, otherwise it'll crush Selina. And seeing an opening, Valmont takes the opportunity to try to kill Batman, but before he can do that, Selina sees what Valmont's going to do, and she ends up uh, essentially slicing the stomach of Valmont and killing him, and then she turns herself into the police. Now, what's interesting about this is that Batman, from the beginning, doesn't trust Valmont. Batman accuses Valmont of essentially being... With the League of Assassins, because he used to work for the League of Assassins, Batman thinks that that Valmont is a plant, that he's sort of a hidden operative. That's what Batman suspects. And it's never really revealed what motivation, what was Valmont's agenda? Why was Valmont there? Why was Valmont getting so close to Selina? And if if was he was was he just using Selina to get in close to ultimately kill Batman at some point, and why? And was he? Why would? Why would Valmont go to all that trouble just to try to kill Batman? And what was Valmont's motivation after all? If he, if Valmont is was working for the League of Assassins, the League of Assassins is c- controlled by Talia. Talia doesn't like Catwoman. Talia hates Selina. Why? Because Selena's sleeping with Bruce Wayne, Batman. That's why. Selina is sleeping with Talia's beloved, so I could understand if Talia, who controls the League of Assassins, is putting Valmont on a secret mission to maybe ultimately take out Selina. But Batman, I, I don't. Or, or now to be clear, Talia's not mentioned in this story, but I don't. I'm trying to figure out why Valmont would try to kill Batman. I'm thinking maybe. He's jealous of Batman because he senses that he knows Selina loves Batman. That's why I, I, I'm guessing that. I'm trying to get into the head here of what's going on. In the meantime, we've got Darius, who is a new character. Speculator alert! Tomcat. He's a new character called Tomcat. I think he made a debut last issue, but he's uh, he's a new character, Tomcat, that's going to be working in conjunction with uh, Eco. Who, while while selina is in jail here she ends up in jail here uh eco is going to probably take over the catwoman persona while Selena's in jail along with her sidekick tomcat who is the former mobster darius and now the speech that selina and bruce have at the end is uh is um is uh kind of I'm not really sure what to what to make of it uh, Selena basically tells you know Bruce is really upset with her, and she for some reason Selena's really depressed. It's like Selena feels she had to kill Valmont. It's not clear to me that she had to kill him she's a trained she's a trained martial artist herself i can't believe she couldn't have found a way to stop valmont without killing him but yet she killed him and then she turns herself in the whole thing seems kind of off to me it didn't quite work but i'm gonna give uh i'm gonna give credit to uh teeny howard i like teeny howard's boldness here she she's going for the gusto she's trying to tell a very bold story it just didn't translate in, in as well as I had hoped it would it didn't quite work for me i, I don't quite it did i didn 't quite buy into Selena's choices uh or i didn't really buy into those motivations and i'm I'm a little unclear as to why Valmont did what he did although Perhaps that some more explanation will come. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Chase. Did was was this storyline wonky to you? Did what what did you get out of this?
0: Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you in that. Yeah, the motivations of the characters. I mean, I, I I can make the assumption that Valmont he's attracted to Selena. He likes the idea of of who Selena is. You know, this glamorous villain and that's why he was attracted to her then met her and she lived up to his expectations. He started falling in love with her, jealous of Bruce. Like I get all that. Um, But if that's the case, it's, it's so, I mean, we're jumping to so many conclusions. Um, But I can kind of forgive that with Valmont because, you know, he's not a character that is established. So you can kind of make up your own motivation or your own personality to some extent, because we've gotten so little. Where I have a problem with it is, like you said, with, with Bruce and how deferential he is to Selena throughout the story. And then even beyond that, Selena's complete loss of agency. Like, even within the story that we've had so far by Tinny Howard, if anything, you could say that Selena has been the most strong-willed and the most formidable and the most capable character throughout the run. And, I, you know, even at the expense of Batman. And, Again, this book is titled Catwoman, so even though it's not the best (laughs) characterization of Batman, I can kind of go along with it because this is not Batman's book. This is Catwoman. But then to have Selina kill Valmont and completely lose it, completely lose all agency, become this complete limp noodle, it just felt – I almost got whiplash with this change in characterization um, and, and to allow herself to be captured and go to prison, I, I just, it's, did not work for me at all. Um, if, if Tinie had this great idea to tell a Catwoman story in prison, I feel like there were better ways to get her there. Um, cause this just felt s- like such a big swerve from everything that's come before in this title. So yeah, this, this. This really didn't work for me, um, but I do agree with you that you have to give uh, Tinny Howard a lot of credit for, for being bold in her her, uh, her story choices. Like you can't fault her. You can't say she's not doing her best. Um, and it might just be that we don't have all the answers yet. We don't have enough uh, context. Maybe it's a, a question of her not having quite enough space in the pages to – Uh, to give us all the information i i I don't know
1: well Uh, we do know that we do know that next issue uh it the issue ends stays teasing that there's a new alley cat in town so i think she she's using the opportunity with selena in jail to tell the story of eco as catwoman uh hasagawa as catwoman and and her sidekick of darius as tomcat i'm guessing that's what she's going to be doing for the next story arc well,
0: yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but you know, I'm not the biggest catwoman fan in the world, but I'm even less of a fan of a catwoman that's not Selena Kyle.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> Fair I enough.
0: Guess, yeah, I guess Fair. we'll I guess we'll have to wait and see how it all plays out. Uh, okay, last individual book we're gonna talk about today, Titans United Blood Pact, issue number four from writer Kevin Scott, Lucas Meyer on art, Tony Avina on colors. The <laughs> art is fantastic, the colors are fantastic. We get this reality's version of Of Connor Kent in this issue, Uh, we get a lot more of uh, a Starfire of Corey, um, with her kind of, kind of a little bit sad sack, kind of a little woe is me. What was I doing? Um, Why was I this confessor general? uh, With Nightwing trying to console her, saying, "Hey, you know, we we were all sort of brainwashed by uh, by Brother Blood, so you know, don't hold it against yourself." So. Um, again, th- this is, uh, as we've talked about before with this series, it's a series where you don't have to have any previous context. Um, if you're a fan of the Titans TV show, they're certainly trying to get you to pick up and read this. So, um, you can pick this up without knowing anything else that's going on in the DCU and enjoy it for, uh, for what it is, which is, um, good characterization, good solid characterization for these classic Titan characters. Fantastic art, gorgeous colors, um, and, uh, a ton
1: of action. So, what'd you, what are, uh, what'd you think of this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't have much to add. I, I, just sort of skim read this one. I, I, in fairness, I actually had, I had two days to read this and, uh, I, I still just skim read it just because I was, I, I think that, uh, I spent too much time trying to find another reason to complain about Dark Crisis. <laughs> and, and this was one of the victims of, of that. But uh, I'm, I will be rereading this. The art here is fantastic. I, I do love the idea of sort of a Connor Kent and in a different, in, a, in an alternate sort of universe where Lex Luthor actually makes a sacrifice here and ends up being killed by Starfire, essentially trying to protect the clone, you know, his own clone, his cloneslash son, uh, Connor Kent. So I kind of like the, I kind of like how. How Kevin Scott sort of plays with the history a bit here. And, you know, it's almost like a what if story. Which in you know in a different way, and I have I always like to Marvel "What If" stories. It's like what if something was slightly different, and and how the the power of of of, uh, of of barren blood, and in this case, the Church of Raven, and the impact that that has, and how Starfire was under the influence of the Church of Raven, and she's overcome that, and now they have to they're in this alternate universe, and they got to they got a this alternate timeline, and they got to figure out how to how to correct it. So it's intriguing. It's got fantastic art. Some of the some of the best art, and as a matter of fact. Who is the artist? Meyer, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, yeah, Lucas Meyer, yeah, and uh, Tony Avina on the colors. This really pops off the page. Really good. And uh, I apologize to Kevin Scott. I'll try to do more justice in, in the in the next two issues. But uh, I will be reading this, and I'll, I'll speak more of it when we read the next issue.
0: <laughs> yeah, th- that idea of Connor Kent as a clone of. Lex Luthor and um, and Clark Kent is is not new, but the fact that Connor calls Luther Dad here that, that is <laughs> yeah yeah it's a different it's a different take and uh yeah certainly certainly interesting. So uh, there are a couple of other single issues that we didn't chat about. Uh, as I mentioned, Scooby Doo, Where Are You, number one nineteen is out today. Also, Harley Quinn, the animated Legion of Bats, which is uh, a little more irreverent, like the Harley Quinn animated series is, has its third issue out. And then in terms of um, collections, there's a ton of collections out this week, I guess just in time for Christmas. Batman Catwoman has its hardcover. Catwoman Lonely City by Cliff Chang has its hardcover out. The latest volume of Flash, trade paperback, number 17, which covers that Eclipso story, is out. Batman Killing Time has its hardcover. And uh, I did ask Tom King about that when we chatted. That episode will will be out uh, today as you're listening to this maybe. Uh, Wednesday, uh, before Christmas. Um, yeah, I did ask him cause he told us that it was a linear story and yet it had flashbacks. So ba- go listen to our, my Tom King chat. Uh, we talk about a ton of other stuff too. Love everlasting and, um, human target and, uh, danger street. Uh, yeah, t- tons of stuff. Uh, but I do, I did ask him about killing time. Uh, also the rogues. Joshua Williamson, Black Label Book, has its hardcover out. Superman Birthright is getting a deluxe edition hardcover. Uh, Harley Quinn, No Good Deed, Volume 1, which is the Riley Rosmo, Stephanie Phillips uh, run that has its first trade paperback. Strange Adventures from the aforementioned Tom King and Mitch Garrods has uh, its softcover trade coming out today. The Death of Superman 30th Anniversary has its deluxe edition hardcover coming out. Uh, There's an Absolute Swamp Thing hardcover edition that is out. Um, A Batman Silver Age Omnibus hardcover. Wow, there's a (laughs) lot of Nubia, Queen of the Amazons hardcover is out as well. So tons of hardcovers. You're looking for some gifts. Hit up your local comic shop. Um, And yeah, other than that, Tons of content coming out for you. 12 days of the comic source. They're all 12 episodes this year for 12 days of the comic source are interviews with mostly with creators. Uh, There is one episode that talks about the new Marvel snap mobile game. And then another one with uh, a YouTube content creator about speculation and comics and how you can have the hobby fund itself. Uh, But for the most part, creator interviews, uh, they've been a lot of fun. Thanks to all the creators who've taken the time to, uh, to show up. And we really appreciate you guys uh, listening in. So,
1: uh book of the book of the week for you rocky uh it boy it's a a toss-up between star girl the the lost children uh but i had so much fun with batman and robin i'm gonna go with batman and robin for my my pick of the week uh what about yourself
0: i gotta go with nightwing i gotta go with nightwing 99 um you know i think i must have said it about six times when i was talking about the book but perfect (laughs) balance of action and characterization um, okay. Just loved it. And I'm not even talking about Dick Grayson characterization the, the, the moments with uh, Melinda Grayson Lynn, formerly Melinda Zuko and her father or, you know, supposed father, her, her namesake, um, Tony Zuko, w- those were just fantastic. Like it was, it yeah. was great to see the, uh, those moments with her telling him about changing her name. So uh, kudos to Tom King for or Tom Taylor, rather for the writing and. For Bruno Redondo for giving us the uh, the character acting uh, in those scenes as well. So,
1: absolutely. Well, that's good. Well, I I uh, I've got a number of things coming up probably later in the week. I know that I'm going to be working on my my top probably my top twenty comics of the year and my uh, top. I'm not sure if I'm going to do a top ten worst comics of the year. I'm going to try to stay positive to end the end the year. I'm still working on different uh, things that I might be working on. I might do I might do a, a full rant on on Dark Crisis as a whole, and I continue to do my indie comics review. I did it with another individual, Jason from the Get Fresh Crew Weird Science. Uh, Jim was indisposed this past week. And yeah, so I'll probably touch base with you. If you find some extra time, maybe we'll end up having a Christmas gathering or live stream of some kind too. So uh um yeah, because next week, it's gonna be after Christmas. So uh Jace, if I, I wish you a Merry Christmas. And uh if I don't see you during the week and everyone listening.
0: Yeah, happy holidays everybody. Merry Christmas, whatever you celebrate. Hope it's a joyous time. Uh and yeah, the the best of 2022 comic source episode that rocky and i comic source comic boom uh, collaboration that rocky and i do will be coming up Ho- hopefully we'll get to it sooner this year i think last year it didn't come out till february i'm really really <laughs> hoping to get to it in january this year um uh, i have it on my schedule to go through the books that i read go through my reading list from 2022 you know i didn't do it again this year i say every year i'm gonna make notes of every comic i read as i read it so when i Get ready to do the best of. I just have to go down my list and look. Oh, this is a th- best moment. You know, this yeah. is uh, whatever. I got. did do <laughs> it. And God, it, I'm kicking myself right now because now that's going to take me hours to go through. So
1: yeah, it's hard. Anyway, yeah. I was just going to say, I'm fortunate that I do my, I've done a lot of indie reviews this year, so I can always go back and just look at my past videos to refresh my memory. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, I could do that too. Uh, But God, that's hours and hours of content as well. So Uh, anyway, everybody, uh, first world problems, as it were. Um, So again, happy holidays. Thanks for joining us as always. Sorry the episode was late, totally on me. Uh, hopefully I won't make that mistake again. But uh, don't forget to head over to YouTube if you're listening to our audio only. Do a search for Rocky's channel. It's Comic Boom! Exclamation, comic Space Boom! exclamation point. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, like this video, leave comments you guys know what to do. Uh, conversely, if you want to be sure you don't miss out on any of the 12, uh, 12 Days of the Comic Source or any of the other audio-only episodes, just go to wherever you get your podcasts and do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. Appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Take guys later. you can find the comic source podcast on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher google play or whichever podcasting app you prefer please tell all your friends about us subscribe and rate us the ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners especially five-star reviews on apple also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation access the show notes and discover all our other great pop culture content